Romans chapter 8, we will read from verse 12 to verse 17, and that will be what we will consider this morning as we continue our study in Romans chapter 8. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Okay, so just a brief recap on what we looked at last week in Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. As we completed that section on Romans 8, verses 1 through 11, um, dealing with our life in the Spirit. And in that passage, in verses 9 through 11, we saw three main things. First, Paul pivots from what he talked about in verses 5 through 8, where he acknowledges that Christians are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Because in verses 5 through 8, he talks about how if you're in the spirit, or if you're in the flesh, if you live according to the flesh, this is what happens. But then in verse 9, he says, But you, to peop- the people to whom I'm writing, you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit. So the indwelling Holy Spirit marks off the believer as one who is in the spirit. So that, that spirit comes into you, it dwells in you, it makes its, its, make, it makes its home inside of you, and marks you off as one of his own. And then conversely, the flip side of that is that the person who does not have the Spirit does not belong to him, that is, to Christ. So that the key and the ground of our salvation, the key and ground of our assurance, and the the motivation of our Christian life is the indwelling Holy Spirit. So the Spirit sanctifies us, makes us holy, and the Spirit also then applies all of the benefits of Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection to our lives. That's the purpose of the Spirit, is to take all of what Christ has done in salvation and then apply it to the believer, which we look at, you know, you could, if you've heard of the Ordo Salutis or the Order of Salvation or the Golden Chain of Salvation, we're going to see it a little bit Later in Romans 8, where he he gives you sort of like a mini golden chain of salvation there. All these things, all these benefits in that chain are provided by the Spirit. The second thing we saw in those verses is that Christ dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit then brings that principle of life uh, to bear in our lives. So even though our body is dead because of sin, that everything about us then is bound to this age is dead, the spirit is life. And we kind of talked about that, how you know some translations say the spirit is alive. And it was referring to you like your personal spirit, your immaterial part, your incorporeal part. But we said that it's really the Holy Spirit is life because of or for the sake of righteousness. And then finally, we saw that the spirit or the Holy Spirit will also then give life to our mortal bodies. So because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, The age to come has broken into this current age. And at the end of this age, our bodies then will be given actual, real, spiritual life that comes 
by Christ, through the Spirit that dwells in us. In fact, we will have a body that is fit then for the kingdom of God. Paul is going to go somewhere with all of this, okay? All of this that he's talking about in Romans 8. And that destination is, is glorious. And the pun is intended because he's going to talk about glorification later in the chapter. But before we get there, Paul wants to teach us yet another benefit of the Holy Spirit in this section that we're going to look at, verses 12 through 17. And that benefit is adoption, is adoption. Now, you might be thinking, okay, what is adoption when we're talking about a Christian doctrine? What is the doctrine of adoption? Well, if you remember last week when we talked a little bit about the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, I made the kind of offhand remark that the Holy Spirit is sort of like the Ringo star of the Trinity. He's, you know, you, you kind of for, he's often forgettable and you don't really talk about him all that much. Well, if that's the case, then adoption kind of is like, is like the Ringo star of soteriology. All right, it, it's just a doctrine that is not really talked about an awful lot. Okay, I mean, you see it, it's, it's here too, because he talks about how we are going to be sons of God and that we get the spirit of adoption. But it's just, it's, a, it's not really a doctrine that we spend a lot of time talking about. In fact, our own confessional standards, the three forms of uni- unity, really only talk about adoption in an indirect way or in a secondary way. They don't have a specific article of our faith or an article of our, our confessional standards that talks about this is what adoption is. In fact, the only two places where we really see adoption mentioned uh, in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 13, question 33, which is really talking about Jesus, says... You know, uh, because Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, we are also sons by adoption. That's all. It's just kind of like a, a tangential reference to adoption, our adoption, because it's really talking about Jesus being the only begotten Son. And then the only the only other place I found it was in the Canons of Dort, Head of Doctrine Five, Article Six, which is talking about perseverance, the perseverance of the saints. And it talks about how we will persevere, the Holy Spirit will preserve us so that we will never lose our adoption as God's sons and daughters. Again, talking about adoption, but sort of through the back door, not really directly addressing the doctrine of adoption. Now here, the Westminster Standards are better in that they address the doctrine directly. They actually have articles of their confessions that say, what is adoption? Or this is what adoption is. But even, the, even though they do that, they do it very briefly. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith devotes an entire chapter to adoption, but the chapter only has one article. So of all the chapters of the Confession of Faith, which have anywhere ranging from two to seven or even eight articles, the, art, the chapter on adoption only has one article to it. Um, Westminster Shorter Catechism deals with it in question 34, and the larger catechism deals with it in question 74. Um, so you can look these up, but I actually have what the answer is in the larger catechism. So the larger catechism in question 74 asks, what is adoption? The answer to what is adoption is, adoption is an act of God's free grace in and for his only son, Jesus Christ whereby all those that are justified are received into the number of his children, and they have his name put upon them. 
and the spirit of his son given to them. They are under his fatherly care and dispensations. They are admitted to all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God. They are made heirs of all the promises and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. Now I'm going to go through these benefits in a little bit, but that's the answer to what is adoption is essentially it's an act of God's free grace whereby we are admitted into the family of God and we're we're admitted on the basis of our justification. Now, if you remember when we were going through the gospel of John earlier, uh, well, it would have been uh, later last year. We are now in 2021. We talked a little bit about it when we were going through John chapter 1. In fact, in verses 12 and 13, uh, we talk about how we are given the right to become children of God because we believe in Jesus and we receive him uh, for who he is. And we are then given the right because we believe and receive Jesus where God gives us the right to become children of God. Now, the Westminster Divines, and as I said, give us a nice treatment of adoption. And I put down, I listed seven benefits that we get from adoption, or seven aspects of adoption. And the first is that it's an act of God's free grace. Now, just as, just as with anything when we're talking about salvation, everything is an act of God's free grace. Okay, so that's how almost all of the benefits of salvation that the Westminster Catechism goes through, almost all of them start off with, this is an act of God's free grace. So justification is an act of God's free grace. Uh, saving or repentance and faith is an act of God's free grace. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. Adoption is an act of God's free grace. So it's always based on the graciousness of God. And second... It is for his son, Jesus Christ. So God adopts us into his family for the benefit of or for the to in other in other words, to give Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, sons, you know, brothers and sisters, a family, a, a bride in a sense. Third, everyone who has been justified by grace through faith and are received into the number of his children. So as you have been justified as that declaration is made in God's court of justice, that you are justified by grace through faith, you are then admitted into the family of God by adoption. In fact, those two, justification and adoption, really kind of go very closely with one another. Fourth, we have God's name put upon us and his spirit given to us. If you remember when we were going through Revelation, a couple of the, the things at the end of Revelation, some of those letters talk about how God will put his name upon us, how God writes his name on us. And I said part of that is to signify, you know, you put your name on things to signify your ownership. And I use the example of when I was a kid, my mom put my name on little tags inside my mittens. So in case the little clips that I used to keep my mittens on my coat, my mittens would fall off. If someone found my mittens, they would say, well, have my name on it. They would know either to give them to me or to not give them to me if they didn't like me for whatever reason. But the point is, the, the, the name on the gloves meant that they were mine. Okay, You put your name on things to signify that you own them, that they are your possession. So God puts his name upon us as his children, and he gives his spirit to us. As we will see, that spirit is given as a guarantee, as a pledge for future blessings to come. Fifth, we are under God's fatherly care. So 
you think about all of the things that happen in the life of a Christian, the trials that we face, the, the good and bad situations that we go through, all of this is part of God's fatherly care over us. So if you're a Christian and you're going through a bad situation, it's not that God is judging you in the negative sense. It is, is what we call his fatherly displeasure. Okay, you know, as a parent over a child, if they do something wrong, yeah, you're angry at that. And you may express some anger, but it's never an anger in the sense of I'm going to kick you out of my house kind of anger. It's always corrective. It's always restorative. You're, you're trying to train them up. So you show your displeasure through discipline in order to train your children to behave better. So all of the things that we say are bad things happening to us in our lives are really God's fatherly care over us to discipline us. Sixth, we're granted all of the liberties and privileges of the sons of God. So we are given all of the immense privileges and freedoms and liberties and blessings and benefits of being in God's family. And then finally, we are made heir of all the promises. And that will we'll go into detail on some of these as we go through Romans 8, 12 through 17. But just think for a moment what it means to be an adopted son or daughter of Almighty God. If you think about adoption in general, you know it's the process of taking a non-biological child into your family. right? That's essentially what adoption is. And unlike biological children, you choose to adopt a child. I mean, okay, you choose to have biological children too but you don't have any choice over the child that comes, right? I mean, it's, you know, the child that is born, is that's, that's what God gives you. But when you adopt a child, you go to an adoption agency or you go to an orphanage or if they even have orphanages anymore. I don't, you know, I'm thinking little orphan Annie, but anyway, you go to the adoption agency and you pick a child to adopt. You may even visit with that child. You may even interview that child or speak with that child or write with that child. The point is when you make that adoption, you are choosing to bring that child into your family. So on a much grander scale, in a much more perfect way, the doctrine of adoption is God is choosing you to be in his family. He does so knowing all of your faults. He does so knowing all of your failures. He does so knowing all of your shortcomings. And he chooses you anyway. Isn't that awesome? I think that's amazingly awesome that God chooses us to adopt us in his family. He says, I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. So now as we come to Romans 8, verses 12 through 17, we're going to look at this truth that we are heirs with Christ. This adoption into the family of God gives us the benefit that we become heirs with Christ. And that's what this section really is teaching. Now, first, as we look at verses 12 through 13, we're going to see that we are debtors to the Spirit. But as he begins in verse 12, he does so with the word, so then, which indicates that he is drawing a conclusion from what he had just written in verses 1 through 11. So verse 11 ends, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And then he goes on to verse 12. So then, brothers, or brothers and sisters, it's a general phrase, but so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. 
or we are debtors, but not to the flesh. And that's the conclusion. We are debtors, but we're not debtors to the flesh. We're not debtors to live according to the flesh. And that word debtor speaks to the notion of one who is under an obligation, one who owes a debt. And Paul is saying that we we owe an obligation to something. We owe a debt to something, but it is not to the flesh. We are not under obligation to the flesh. We are not under obligation to the sphere of the flesh or to the things of this age. Now, why is that? Well, the answer to that question is basically what we've been studying from Romans 6 all the way up to now. If you remember from a few weeks back, Romans 8-2, we've been set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life. So that's one reason why we're no longer debtors to the flesh, because we've been set free from that by the law, by the, by the spirit of life. Second, what he said in Romans 8-9, we are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So we're not debtors to the flesh because we're not in the flesh anymore. We're in the spirit. And then third, it's really sort of like a catch-all. Think of all the other things we considered in Romans 6 and 7. We've been set free from, uh, from, the, from the law. We are under grace. We're no longer under the law. We are, we're dead to sin, but alive to God. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. All of these things, all these metaphors Paul has been using has been to suggest that we are no longer in the sphere of the flesh. We're no longer part of this age. We're no longer debtors to this this program, this principle, this, this life, way of life. We've been taken out of that and we've been put into under the spirit, under grace in this in the age to come. Now, this idea of not being debtors to the flesh, consider some of the practical applications this has on our Christian lives. Because if you remember in Romans 7, we talked about the struggle that we have because even though we've been regenerated, even though we've been made new, even though we are new creations in Christ, we still struggle with the flesh. We still struggle with sin because our bodies, our physical bodies are still products of this age. So this, and that's where sin uh, comes in. That's where sin dwells. That's where sin attacks us from. So we, you know, this, our flesh gives us sort of like a beach hold or a, a foothold into Sin. Sin has its beachhead in our bodies through the flesh. And that's how we are attacked by the world, the flesh, and the devil. So how do we move then from Romans 7, which is Paul talks about our struggle and our failure. I don't do what I want to do and the things I do, that's not what I want to do. And and what's going to happen to me and nothing good dwells in my body and all this and woe is me because, you know, I'm, I'm just under this law of sin and everything. So how do we move from that struggle and failure into what we're seeing in Romans 8, which is victory? A part of that is in realizing we owe the flesh nothing. We have no obligation to obey the lusts of the flesh. We said this before when we looked at Romans chapter 6, and we said there were three steps to sanctification. All of these you can find in Romans 6, 1 through 14. First, we have to know something. We have to know the truth that we are dead to sin. You've been dead. You've been buried with Christ in baptism to be raised to newness of life. You have died to sin. 
You need to know that. You need to have that in your mind as a truth that you can draw from. And then he says in verses 5 through 11, you have to consider then. You have to reckon this to be true. So you have to know it. You have to accept it. <laughs> okay? There's three, three things to faith. You have to know something. Faith has content. Faith has an acceptance of it. It's like, okay, I acknowledge it to be true. And then the third thing is action or trust. That then from that knowledge and that acceptance of it, it moves you into a, a pathway of living. So you have to know that you've died to sin. You have to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. That's what Paul talked about in Romans 6, 5 through 11. This idea of reckoning ourselves this, to accept this fact to be true. And then the idea of presenting ourselves then to God and not to sin. So he says, present your members to God as slaves of righteousness, not to sin as a slave of sin. So no consider, present. And if you remember also back then, we said that sin only has the control in your life that you allow it to have. As a redeemed person in Christ, as a new creation in Christ, sin only has the power that you give it. Okay, The unbeliever doesn't have that ability. They have no freedom to, to obey. Okay, But the believer does because the believer has been made alive. The believer has, has their eyes open. The believer has uh, been given faith in Christ and has, has the spirit in us. And we are able then to obey. So the only way sin has control in your life is if you choose to let it have that control. I mean, given all the ways Paul describes our lives in sin, he uses slavery and death and all these things. Not that we have been set free, uh, or now that we have been set free, the only way we sin is if we allow sin back in the driver's seat. And again, just not to downplay the struggle we have with sin, again, see Romans 7, but it is to suggest that when we sin, it's because we succumb to its temptations. It is because we allow sin to have that control in our lives. Well, the same goes here in Romans 8.12. We are no longer debtors to the flesh. The flesh has no claim on our lives. That's the point Paul's making. Now, Paul doesn't say it explicitly here, but if we're not debtors to the flesh, then what is implied is that we must be debtors to the spirit, right? If you're not a debtor to the flesh, you must be a debtor to the spirit. There's no third way. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral stance here. You're either in the flesh and the spirit. So if you're not a debtor to the flesh, you have to be under obligation or a debtor to the spirit. And as we get to verse 13, we see what has become sort of a familiar dichotomy that Paul has been using all along here from Romans 6, 7, and now 8. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, and you by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Uh, at the expense of sounding like a broken record, a life lived according to the pattern of this age by necessity leads to death. Paul keeps hammering this point home over and over again because he wants us to know this. And then the contrast is that if you live by the Spirit or if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, several things of interest in this phrase here, of course, that by the Spirit means that you are living according to the principles of the Spirit. You're living according to the principles of this age. 
The Holy Spirit is your guiding principle. And by this guiding principle, by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, if you put to death the deeds of the body. Puritan John Owen once said, uh, and I like this phrase, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. (laughs) Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And Paul uses this language elsewhere as well. Galatians 5.24, he says, Those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So that is the idea of putting the flesh to death. You, you are crucifying the flesh. You are, you are slaying the flesh in your body. In Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul very explicitly says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, or fleshly in you, or things of this age, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put those things to death in you. Put to death in you the deeds of the body. And this idea of putting to death, it's violent, right? Putting something to death. It's proactive. It it involves you actually doing something and desiring to do something. You need to be actively killing sin in your life. You can't sit around. You can't just sit on your chair and be like waiting for sin to kind of shrivel up and die in your life. That's not how it works. That's not how sanctification. I wish it. I wish sanctification worked that way. I wish I could just sit down and, you know, like this on a Sunday afternoon and, you know, just be sanctified. (laughs) You know, but unfortunately, that's not how it works. You can't sit and be sanctified. You have to be actively killing sin in your life. Do not feed the flesh. You starve it. You make no provision for it. Do not gratify its desires. You must take active steps to prevent temptation and starve the sin impulse in your life. Jesus says this too, right? You need to take drastic actions. If your right eye causes you to sin, what do you do? You pluck it out, right? If your right hand causes you to sin... Cut it off. You know, this is better to go into, into the kingdom with one eye or one hand than to be whole and go to hell. Sometimes sin takes drastic actions to, to avoid it. I mean, if you think about it, if you're a recovering alcoholic, you shouldn't be spending any time in bars, right? I mean, as a recovering alcoholic, you need to avoid the temptation. So you don't even go to the bar. And, you know, it's like sometimes you see this in the movies, right? You know, they go to the bars. I'll just have some club soda. It's like, okay, well, why are you in the bar in the first place if you're a recovering alcoholic? Okay, Don't they teach you that in AA? You need to get, you know, do away with that and avoid the temptations. This way of life, actively killing sin by the spirit, or some uh, writers like to call it the mortification of sin. In fact, John Owen calls it. He's got a work called that. The mortification of sin, the killing of sin. This is what leads to life. So now we come to verses 14 through 16 as we look here where we see this concept of adoption uh, coming to the fore. In verse 14 where he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now we looked at, when we looked at the larger catechism, what it said about adoption, we noted that one of the benefits of, is that God's spirit is given to us. And it is this spirit then which leads us 
For all who are led by the Spirit. And this leading can be broken down in two main ways. The Spirit leads us through illumination by making the Scriptures known, by giving us discernment in the Scriptures. And the Spirit also leads us in sanctification by enabling us to obey God's Word, what we see in God's Word. And this leading of the Spirit, then, is a distinguishing mark on those who have been adopted into God's family. Last week in Romans 8 9, Paul said anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. In other words, if you, if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you do not have that distinguishing mark. God does not give his Spirit to those who are not his. But the Holy Spirit is given to and indwells those who belong to the Father by way of adoption, the sons of God. Those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. And then this Holy Spirit then leads the sons of God into holy living. If you remember, Jesus said to his followers in the Sermon on the Mount at the end of chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says to them, says, you need to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. You think, whoa, that's a pretty high standard, right? I mean, perfection, that's you know, way up there. <laughs> that's what you need to be. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. The Holy Spirit is leading you in the way of putting off sin, of killing sin in your body, of doing away with the sinful desires, so that you will eventually be perfect. Not in this life, of course. We don't teach perfectionism. But the idea is we are being sanctified. We are being made holy. And the only way this happens is by the leading of the Spirit. And then in verse 15 like verses 13 and 14 before it, verse 15 begins with that word for, which indicates another reason or a basis upon which a conclusion is reached. So he says, you're led by the Spirit, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery, smallest spirit, you did not receive this idea or this sense of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received, capital S Spirit, the Holy Spirit of adoption, as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We are debtors to the Spirit. We are sons of God because, or for, we did not receive a spirit of slavery or the spirit of slavery. Now again, another refresher course. Remember back in Romans 6, and we looked at the idea of slavery there, where Paul says we are no longer slaves of sin, but slaves of God. And then we talked about how slavery wasn't really maybe the best metaphor to use for the Christian life, but it does speak to this idea that we do owe obedience to the Father. So we are no longer the slaves to sin, who is a harsh taskmaster, but we're now slaves to God, who is a loving and kind Father. And we said that the experience, that the slavery experience with God is qualitatively different than the experience of slavery we had to sin. And the reason for that, you can you know, see that here in Romans 8, is because we did not receive that, when we were adopted into the family of God, we did not receive that spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. In other words, even though slavery does describe the fact that we are servants of God and owe him all obedience, this all takes place in the context of adoption. The idea of being a slave of God is the sense that we are part of his family. It takes place in this sphere of adoption. We have received the spirit of adoption as sons. 
So our relationship with God is not so much as a slave to a master as it is a child to a father. Now, this idea of adoption, like all other aspects of our salvation, has an already and not yet aspect to it. Note again, verse 15 says we have received past tense. We are already children of God. We have been received into the family of God. We have received that adoption as sons of God, sons and daughters of God. But then if you drop down to verse 23, Paul says, this is, we're going to look at this later, not today later, but in a couple of weeks later. Uh, in verse 23, Paul says, we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. So we are in the family of God. We have received the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of adoption. This is no bait and switch. We're not like, okay, you're sons of God. No, not really. You're going to wait for it for later. No, it's like we are already sons of God, but then it will be more fully consummated and manifest when Christ returns that we are fully sons of God. In other words, I mean, think about it this way. Can you look at a person and tell that he or she is a child of God? No, not really. I mean, not just from looking at them. There's no, like, you know, mark. Not like the mark of the beast or the mark of God. You can't look. I mean, that's what Spurgeon said. You can't. It's like, I would love to be able to pull up the person's shirt tails and see elect on there so I know that I need to preach the gospel of this person. There's, there's no distinguishing mark that we can discern that tells a son or a daughter of God. But at the end of the age, it will be abundantly clear who the sons and daughters of God are. We will be openly acknowledged and declared to all creation that we are the sons of God, which is why Paul can say in that section there that creation itself groans. It groans until our true nature has been revealed. And of course, then it is this spirit of adoption which gives us the privilege to cry out, Abba, Father. And that word Abba is not the name of a Swedish rock band from the 70s. <laughs> Anybody here know like Dancing Queen? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I know, I could look at Jerry. He's, he's my 70s rock guru there. Uh, it's, it's an intimate word. It's an Aramaic word. It comes from the Hebrew, Ab, you know, Ab is father. And Abba is sort of like a, an intimate, uh, kind of a diminutive of that. It can be loosely translated as Papa. But it's meant to denote intimacy, dependence, and tenderness. It is what a child calls his daddy. Now, not to be reduced to the idea that God is your daddy, but the, it's, a, it's a, in term of endearment is what it is. In fact, R.C. Sproul said of this verse, one of the great consequences of justification is that all who are justified are immediately adopted into the family of God, and now we have the unspeakable privilege of addressing God as father. Now, this would have blown the mind of a Jew, because in the Old Testament, Jews never referred to God as Father. It was always God Almighty. They wouldn't even say his name, the covenant name that he gave him, because for fear of taking his name in vain. And then Jesus comes along the scene, and he says, my Father, my Father, my Father. And they're like, why are you calling God your Father? <laughs> you know, and they understood that that was a blasphemy to call God his Father. But then what, how does Jesus teach us to pray? When they say, Lord, teach us to pray, what does he say? Well, say this way, our Father. He is giving us the privilege of calling God Father. Like he gets to call, he's the only one who can legitimately call God Father. 
But because of our adoption, we are then given that privilege of calling him our father as well. I'm going to do it. All right, turn to Galatians 4. I was looking at the time, but... It's a parallel passage in Galatians 4 that speaks to this concept of slavery versus sonship. Now I'm wondering how many times we're taking note of the times we're going through Romans and turning to Galatians. The two parallel each other quite closely. But in Galatians 4, starting in verse 1, Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Very close parallel to what we've been looking at here in Romans. But this idea that, you know, the slave, you know, when a, when a child, when a, per, when a person's child is a, a son or daughter is a small child, they are no different than a slave. That's what Paul is saying. But then in the fullness of time, when Christ comes now, we are given the full rights and privileges as being adopted into God's family. And then we are given the privilege to call God Father, Abba Father, and we are heirs with God. Now you look at verse 16 there, it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And we talked earlier about the Holy Spirit as an act, uh, as, as a guarantee, or as a down payment, an erobone, that's the Greek word, it's, it's, it's a down payment on something, an earnest. And the idea is that the Spirit then witnesses to us, okay? You know, the Bible talks about how a charge can only be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Well, the Spirit is in us witnessing to the fact that we are sons and daughters of God. And that's amazing because we're, we're apt to want to forget that and to, you know, lose that train of thought. But the Spirit is witnessing to us that, and testifying to us to the truth of the matter that you are a child of God. In other words, the good news is that your adoption is not based on your subjective feelings. If you don't feel like you're being particularly holy one morning, you don't have to wake up and worry, well, did I lose my adoption yesterday because I fell into grievous sin? Because the Holy Spirit is residing in you, testifying to you, you are a child of God. You are a child of God. Now, it's not saying that audibly. So if you, you know, don't expect to hear voices in your head. But the Spirit is testifying that you are a true true child of God. And that testimony is confirmed by the spiritual fruit we see in our lives. Again, from R.C. Sproul, in the final analysis, our, our assurance of salvation is not a logical deduction springing from our theology. Our assurance is certainly not based on a careful analysis of our behavior. Thank God for that, right? (laughs) 
If I were to think, you know, base my assurance looking at my behavior over my life. Anyway, our final assurance comes by the testimony of God, the Holy Spirit, who bears witness with and through our spirits that we are the children of God. And then finally, in verse 17, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. One of the greatest blessings of being a child of God is that being a child entitles us to an inheritance. Okay? Now, we've said it before, Jesus Christ is the only true, begotten, only begotten Son of God. But by virtue of our adoption, as such, we're not sons in the same sense that Christ is son, but we still receive an inheritance. We are heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ. And this is a glorious truth. Now, what does it mean to be an heir? What do we inherit? Well, if you remember, according to Jewish custom, right, you had the right of the firstborn. So depending on how many children you had, the firstborn got a double portion. So if you had three children, the, the, first, the firstborn would get two-thirds, and then the last two would have to split the final third. Okay? That's just the way it was in Jewish tradition. Roman law established that each child would receive equal portions. So if you had three children... Each child will get an equal third of the estate. Now, when we're an heir with Christ and there's an innumerable number of children of God, right? I mean, who, you know, who knows the true number of all the believers who have ever existed in the world? Does that mean that the inheritance is split up that many ways and we each get a little slice of the inheritance? What do you think? Do we get a slice of the inheritance? Okay, Fred's shaking his head and whispering no. No, we don't. We get the whole thing. I mean, God is infinitely rich, right? How do you divide up infinity? You don't. We are fellow heirs with Christ. That means whatever Christ receives as God's one and only begotten Son, we also receive. Now, I could go on and enumerate all the benefits, but we don't have time, and I didn't bother to enumerate them anyway. But it, even if I could enumerate some of them, that wouldn't even scratch the surface of all that we get as being an heir with Christ. But there is a, a caveat. And that caveat is provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now this thought will continue into what we will look at next week, Lord willing, when we look at verses 18 through 25. But the principle here is the principle of the cruciform life. All right, or the cross-shaped life. In other words, the road to glory leads through suffering. The road to exaltation leads through first Humiliation. This is the way Christ took in his life, right? He went through humiliation into exaltation. He became, he took on the form of a servant. He suffered, died, was buried in the tomb. You know, you go through the Apostles' Creed, it talks about his humiliation, and then it talks about his exaltation. Three days later, he rose, he ascended, he was seated at God's right hand, and now he will come again to judge the living and the dead. All of that is his exaltation, but first, he had to go through the road of humiliation. He had to go through the road of suffering. All of that went through the road of the cross. There are no shortcuts. A person who is a child of God and a fellow heir with Christ will give evidence of this in their lives. Part of that is a willingness then to go through suffering. So we can go along to get along in this life to receive worldly riches or... 
We can renounce this world and all that it has to offer to receive Christ and share in his infinite, eternal inheritance. And that's the lesson for this morning. Well, Lord willing, again, next time, February 7th, we'll be looking at Romans 18 through 25 as we consider the concept of future glory.